Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Coming up on The Payoff, it's the story of one of the youngest female commercial airline pilots ever. Her journey to sobriety actually included her turning in her wings so she could get help battling addiction. Today, the Southern California native is flying high thanks to sobriety, good recovery, and a newfound understanding of self. They call her Kim Chi, but after this podcast, you're probably going to be calling her awesome. But first, my man, Kevin Souza. It's kimchi. Now, should I call you kimchi or should I call you? Is there a government name I should call you by? How, like, how do we do this? Um, my friends call me kimchi and I'm an alcoholic. It's a nickname that came from treatment and kind of stuck. All right, so we'll call you kimchi. Yeah. It was a very affectionate nickname from treatment. And then also people would ask, where the name came from because I do not look Korean and uh, that would be a good starter for a girl that likes to hide out and you know not get in the mix so before we get to your first meeting I want to kind of get to your 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 upbringing your childhood you grew up in Southern California right I did did I was born to a huge mess of very thirsty native Southern Californians. And I used to be really bitter and say the wolves that raised me and, and things like that. But um, especially as I continue to raise my own kids, I just realized everyone was doing the best that they could. But yes, I was, I grew up in Southern California. Did you grow up in like an alcoholic family? Yes, Alcoholism very in the family? So. Okay. Yes. It comes, I have double, triple loaded genes from both sides. You know, even my grandmothers, maybe it wasn't alcohol, but they each, you know, my dad's mom and my mom's mom each had quiet little 1940s breakdowns where they passed the kids off to aunts and uncles and did what they had to do. Where would they go back then? um, The hospital? My... I don't know if anybody was ever hospitalized, but um, my dad grew up in Texas City, Texas, and he was kind of shipped off back to Connecticut to be with his um, auntie and uncle. And my mom's mom, I know she was never hospitalized, but abandonment was central to both of my parents at very young ages. But don't get me wrong, my grandmothers were lovely people. It was in the 40s to you know to have feelings and raise children and try to um to just do that 1940s 1950s thing like everything is okay yeah yeah everything is okay right and that's and that's like a microcosm of the alcoholic family at least the family i grew up in in a sense where it's like 
hey, we're not going to discuss the big issues, the elephant in the room. We're just going to go about our business. And if you can maintain a job and show up for stuff, well, we're going to guess you're okay. Exactly. That's what it was. My mom was PTA president and my dad was an airline pilot. And I ended up doing those same things. Like I could hold a job and I could chair functions at the PTA and make everything look good on the outside when it was crumbling on the inside. So I definitely grew up in the family where we don't talk, we don't tell, we don't, everything's good because can't you see there's lots of tacos you know you, you don't see me crying when I'm eating a taco it's not been until the last I would say four or five years for me that I've even been willing to feel the feelings of a really confusing childhood take me back to your first drink I don't remember the exact first it's shocking to me that it wasn't younger because there's alcohol always in our house, always at family events. But um, sometime in high school, I just had a beer with my girlfriends. And um, maybe my very first, as best I could remember, I was on our annual family camping trip. And my favorite, favorite cousin and her boyfriend went down. Some call it skinny dipping. Some call it just the <laughs> evening bath. Um <laughs> But Wait, what was the bath? What was the what was the bath? The, the evening bath. Didn't, okay. There were no showers at the lake. Um, even back then, there weren't. But there were outhouses and the lake for bathing. So we'd um, we were down and they had an ice chest and I had a beer with them. I'm not sure I was that off to the races drinker. I um, eased into it through my high school years, and it all seemed really normal because that's what everybody was doing on the weekends. But I had a standing babysitting gig every single Saturday night. So I'd go to parties with my friends in high school on Friday nights and always babysat on Saturday nights. But I also, you know, I graduated from a high school that had a big deal drug bust at the Riviera Country Club um, at the prom. So Drugs and alcohol were everywhere all the time. What kind of drugs? In my family, cocaine. Okay. And I'm sure pot too. I know my girlfriends would smoke pot with my little brother at parties. We had a lot of parties at my mom's house. She's very permissive about the whole thing. But I always knew I wanted to fly airplanes. So it was real clear to me that drugs would not be a part of my story. Thank goodness, because I'd be dead now if um, if I could if that could have been an option. So you have cocaine and, 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 and alcohol around you as, you as you're growing up. No, you grew up in Manhattan Beach, I'm guessing like in, in the 80s and the 90s? Yes, 80s. What was that I, like? I, that, I mean, to me, that's like the most romantic thing in the world or the sexiest thing in the world. What was that like? It was definitely cool compared to um, the beach cities now, but it was way back when you know, pilots and flight attendants and policemen, they could afford to live in Manhattan Beach. And the school teachers lived there. And my principal lived a few blocks away. And certainly not like that now. But, um, and we could walk barefoot to the beach. We were about three quarters of a mile from the beach, right by Rosecrans, and could walk um, barefoot 
all on our own to the beach when we were, I don't know, 12, 13. Yeah, it's not now. like that anymore, right? No, it was it was a sleepy little beach town. But then by the time I got to high school, um, I graduated in 85. But by the time I got to high school, it, you know, we were, my parents were divorced. We were still in, um, lucky enough to stay in Manhattan Beach. But we didn't have all the things that all the other kids had. So I definitely felt less than. Um, not everybody was divorced in Manhattan Beach like now. It, it wasn't such a normal thing. So right off the bat, I felt less than. I had hand-me-down clothes and hand-me-down bicycles. And when I look back on it now, though, oh, my God, that my mom was able to keep us in that house and pay off the mortgage. And, you know, it's still in our family. That is an amazing thing because, you know, we could have ended up in an apartment somewhere different. We, I didn't realize how lucky I was. I just always thought I was less than. Yeah. Well, did and you... I was shy and awkward. And it just, you know, I, I never felt anywhere near the cool kids or, but that's okay. I guess it's okay now. For me, that's like the perfect remedy to all that stuff is alcohol. And and so was there a point in your formative years where you started to lean on that? Or did you kind of know you wanted to be an airline pilot? You knew what you wanted to do. So you just kind of flew straight in high school. I was straight-ish, but we had the parties at my house. My mom would now and then just prefer that we were drinking there. So she'd call Sam's Liquor and order a keg my besties could drive and I could not. So um, my mom would let us use her, let my girlfriend drive her car to go get the beer. If it was a keg of beer, if it was going to be at our house and nobody could drive home afterwards. <laughs> those were the rules. So, yeah, those were the rules. And it's kind of funny because I was in a meeting. I don't mean to jump forward, but I was in a meeting with the Manhattan Beach police officer who remembers the mom who would be passed out at parties. And, and that was my mom. We'd have to wake my mom up to go talk to the police officer to shut down the party. And that all just seemed kind of okay and normal. And everything was more permissive back then. But now I realize that pervading sense of this is normal because the prom got busted for drugs. And this is normal because my girlfriends are doing it. And this is normal um, and it wasn't, but my drinking stayed very on par with a more mellow crowd through high school and college. I didn't have um, alcohol related consequences for decades later. So you go to, so you, where'd you go to college? I went to Southern Illinois University because I Salukis. didn't want to learn to fly. Yeah. Okay. It's impressive that you know that. <laughs> Is that like a, like a, like a place where pilots go? Back in the, um, Later 80s, they did have a airport that, and a flight program that was part of the university. So that it, back then it was, there were a good handful across the nation of schools that had degrees in aviation, but that was one of the um, front running schools. And at the time, my dad was a TWA pilot. So that was 
very convenient because my airline passes got me to St. Louis and then the school was just 70 miles um, south and east from there. So your dad is a, is, is a pilot at TWA. He is an alcoholic and are we calling him functional? Totally. Yes. Now I heard a guy recently say, and he was, he was, a, he was a sober guy, an alcoholic. This guy's actually a drug and alcohol counselor. He says, you know, people would say that I was a functional alcoholic, but in the reality, there's really nothing functional about being an alcoholic, right? Because at some point, like your relationships, like that, those are the kind of things that are supposed to be the most important things in our lives, right? Like relationships with people. Um, did your father lack in those areas that you noticed back then? I would have to say yes, but I didn't know what I was missing because he was there and he was around. And also, PWA was um, at that time in and out of financial distress. And so he spent a, a good part of his career on furlough when I was very young. He went to training when I was three and then. Um, over the next 18 years, had two furloughs that totaled like seven years. Oh, wow. So he would sometimes run his own construction company and sometimes fly airplanes. I remember when I was young, he would come home in his uniform with his flight bag and whistle when he got in the door, and, and he was so happy. So I don't think alcohol was as prominent a part of, but I can't speak for him, sure. a prominent a part of things going on than, you know, he was doing construction without a nail gun, you know, framing with a hammer back in the day. So now you're, you're in college. And, and again, like you mentioned, you go through college, there's no, there's no major consequences. How does, how does it evolve um, for you professionally and personally? I mean, even without the alcohol through college and then into a professional life? Again, I never quite felt worthy or um, up to or good enough to be doing what I was doing. Somehow I've had this pervasive my entire life, like, you know, I don't deserve this. I got hired very young out of an internship program. I was 21 years old when I was hired and turned 22 in new hire school and was just kind of hanging on and having fun and I was not you know drinking was what we did it was not an each and every day event but I do recall times in high in college sorry where um you know we got in trouble I was on the flying team and we got in trouble for having beer in our rooms at national championships and the coaches took it kind of lightly when we forced around yeah, I mean, even in my experience, like that's just not a, that's not a huge deal. It's like athletes get caught on a Saturday night getting drunk after a game. It's like, OK, you slap them on the wrist and let's have everybody get back to work. Exactly. You know, and we finished up our um, our competition and, you know, the coach thought it was hilarious. And he picked the four of us that were the least hungover to fly the school's airplanes back up to Carbondale. It was all at an acceptable level even through my first uh, dozen years at work. I remember though, when I was on the 727 in the early nineties and I flew with this wild captain because the, the, the industry has changed dramatically. Like drinking was 
what everybody did. Park the jet, you have a drink kind of mentality. And I had sex with this one captain and we got off the crew van late at night somewhere. And he's like, okay, five minutes, Bible reading and meditation in my room. And so the flight attendants and the other pilot and the captain myself went there and that's, I had my first martini there. And then I was exposed more and more to that's just what we do. We drink coffee all night flying and then park the jet and have a drink. And that worked okay for years and years until it just, it didn't. You know, uh, September 11th was when things took serious turn. I was having panic attacks and using alcohol more and more to just cope. Were there were, were other people in your industry doing the same thing and coping in their own ways? Yes. And nobody was talking about it. That's the thing. Nobody was talking about their stress out loud. I had one captain I flew with who year after September 11th, where we could actually say what we were truly feeling about what had happened and how none of us felt safe anymore. And I would have to study for many, many more years to figure out what that trauma brought me back to in all of my young life, because all of a sudden, every bit of security that I found in the world was shattered. I was a homeowner. I didn't have kids yet. I was once divorced already, but I had I owned a home, managed my own life. Everything was rocking, and the rug was so pulled out from under me, out from under all of us. The company wasn't talking about how stressful it was. The pilots weren't talking to each other about how stressful it was. And we'll just say was. we'll just say you were a pilot for a major airline while this was happening. Yes. Okay. Yes. I, it took a long time. I, it's a long time to sort out those feelings. Uh, the first thing I did to get back slightly on track was bought Dodger season tickets for <laughs> the remainder of this season and just did baseball. And since then, I've done some union work to lobby um, with one of the 9-11 widows for safer cockpit access. Then I was in treatment with a woman who had lost her son in one of the towers. It took all of that plus decades to kind of get back to some sense of security. And working on a more complete fourth step right now, and I see all through my fourth step writing that I want to be parented. And I've looked to all kinds of crazy places like my union or some guy or some girl or the FAA, anybody to like take care of. To stable, to stabilize the unit, right? Yes. Yeah. And for people who don't know that you are listening, you know, when Kim Chi says that four step, that's in a 12 step program, we take a personal inventory um, and we kind of lay it all out there. We write it all out. And then there's also some accountability for us and we can kind of see what, what caused those actions. It's a real deep dive in layman's terms. It's a real deep dive. 
it is. And I'm the common denominator in all of it. In everything. Not, I hate that. I have always in every, yeah. every relationship I'm in. I'm the common denominator. It's the gift and the curse, right? And it's always the solution when you do the work that comes on the back end of that stuff. So I want to get back to your, you know, 9-11 happens. Your drinking starts to progress. Is there a moment when you're like, okay, not only do I have these issues in my life as far as the trauma with 9-11, but now I'm, I'm drinking alcoholically. And oh, by the way, it's in my blood because my family is full of alcoholics. I, yeah, that came not too long after then. I would have to say I was pregnant with my second daughter and just really could not entirely stop drinking, even for the pregnancy. You know, my marriage isn't right. My happiness is just eaten alive. I managed myself into this 1950s marriage where there wasn't room for a, an adventurer, aviatrix. In my whole life started to look like a, not just a con- cautionary tale, but like a sentence. You know, when I'm holding this newborn, like, well, you know, these kids will go to college someday and I'll be able to be me. Well, that's a long time yeah. from, from birth to college. I couldn't wrap my head around the words, I'm an alcoholic, because that's not allowed in my profession. And it's not, it wouldn't fit into my family. It wouldn't fit into my friend. Like, who will be my friend? My family's not going to want to deal with me. Uh, it just, I, it seemed hopeless. And I had actually been introduced to the 12 steps dealing with things back in high school because I was in an eating disorder program. And did you have a, a, like a positive I, experience with, with, with the steps? I did not do them. I learned about them. And no, I never considered it a positive experience because. There weren't a lot of OA meetings back then, Overeaters Anonymous mm-hmm. meetings back then, or or any or so much um, resource material for eating disorders specifically. So I was 17 years old, and I was at some pretty hardcore NA meetings and AA meetings, cleaning ashtrays because people smoked back then. And I'm like, this, no. This is not no, for me. This is not <laughs> Which is interesting because now you're at a point in your life where it's almost we talk about it in the literature, like that jumping off point where, you know, you're drinking through your pregnancy, you're holding this newborn, you're like, what's going on? And you can't even begin to think about the fact you might be an alcoholic. And it's very easy, at least for me, being in a similar situation to compare myself out and be like, well, I'm not an alcoholic because I can't go to those meetings. It's like anything I could do to keep myself from getting sober, I would do. And so if I had to be maybe like you did. Well, those meetings with those people with the cigarettes, like, no way, not going there. Yeah. And I could not buy into the disease model at all. You know, I thought it was a cop out. It's like, I don't have a disease. I just like cookies. (laughs) Um, And at the least finest hour of my, you know, the photo finish of my drinking career, talk to this naturopath who, you know, because I was sweating at night and I, you know, it had to be menopause and I was anxious all the time. So she said, you know, because I ate meat and cheese. So, um, you know, maybe a vegan diet would serve 
stop all this. And it's like, I was willing to go to any length then because I became a vegan for 30 days. And all I can say now is, thank God I'm actually an alcoholic and not a vegan. So, um, (laughs) yeah, it's, I, I was so shut down to the idea of solving, um, what was going on with me through the 12 steps, 12 steps of anything. It was suggested so, so many years ago, like when I was 17, that I start, that I at least go to the adult children of alcoholics program. But I, I, I didn't do that either. I tried everything in between. In my 20s, I did the Course in Miracles. It took me three years to do 365 day, um, staying on Course in Miracles. I thought I'd become a Catholic. I thought I would, um, you know, be more spiritual. I thought I would, you know, move to Chicago. I thought I would move to Denver. I, you know. And everywhere you yeah. go, there you are. And everything you join, your, your alcoholism comes with you. I would always tell people, you know, I could start a new job and, uh, you know, because that was my problem, my job. So I'd start a new job. And then the alcoholic mm-hmm. is going to show up. Whether it's 60 yeah. days or six months, like he's coming. The day of reckoning is coming not long after that, whether I want to admit it or not. And it sounds like you were going through some of the similar things. Yeah, I could. um, I was talking to a counselor who recommended moderation management. And um, I did that and went to some meetings. And that starts out with, you know, well, you need to not drink for 30 days. So I did that. But then it, I could either do it or not do it. I couldn't enjoy my drinking and I couldn't control it. You know, and then moderation management, you know, I couldn't, I didn't want to drive to Hermosa Beach from Palos Verdes for fear that, you know, I couldn't even, and let's be really clear, I never busted my 12-hour rule from when I would go to work, you know, when I stopped drinking to go to work. Like, that is not part of my story, thank goodness, that I didn't cross that line, but I couldn't do moderation management because I didn't want to. When you real quick, when you say that twelve hour rule, like that's the airline pilot rule. When you show up, do they test you? How does that work? Like, is it, are you just on your honor? We're on our honor. There is random alcohol and drug testing, so it could happen. It does happen, but for the most part, we're on our honor. Okay. It's um, part of the FAA. Well, the FAA regulations are eight hours. It might be bumped up now. I don't know, but at my particular place of employment it was 12 hours so you try the moderation you're not you're, you, that that's not happening and you know it's funny for people even myself now with a somewhat rational mind uh you know being sober i it's it's nuts what we'll do to keep this liquid in our lives like any other normal person would just be like hey i think this prob this probably isn't working for me because i'm thinking about it so much but it's not like that for other people so when did your life completely bottom out um, as far as alcoholism was concerned. What was your moment? Was there a turning point, a specific one, or was there a series of events? I was more and more um, in a jam with my family and other people who cared about me. I behaved very badly at a family wedding in, I think, 2014. And you mentioned you and, were you mentioned you were married. Were you still married at this time or no? I was on my second marriage at that time with okay. two small kids. Okay. Um, so 2014, I'm 
blowing up in my family and I couldn't understand why I was getting so much heat from a bunch of alcoholics that I'm the one, I'm the one who needs to change. And I behaved very badly at a family wedding up in Ojai, which is just near Santa Barbara and um, got dropped off on the way home in Malibu at Sober Living. Stayed a month and instead I would stop drinking for a year. Um, I had the option of doing 12-step recovery at that sober living, but I said, no, thank you. And I did stay sober for a year. How was that? My life was amazing. It was <laughs> um, awesome with my kids. Um, I couldn't pull my marriage back to right, but um, but I was with the same grit that I was drinking at everybody before that I was not drinking at them so I was not very healthy and it was um that time that was my first exposure to I did go to AA meetings when I got out of when I left the place in Malibu but the group was judgy and they picked on me and they wanted to hear from me every morning (laughs) now I get it's all the same people that I love every morning now in my meetings. Um, but back then it, it felt too hard. So I decided to go to the church of spin every morning. Okay. Um, so <laughs> I did that and I stayed sober for the year that I said I would. It so you, so you did, so you, you stopped flying because you're drinking. I did. I, um, uh, let's see, two and a half years ago, I surrendered into, the I like to call it the Naughty Pilots Club. Okay. It's a, um, the FAA plus my union plus the uh, company that I work for. They work in a, um, a monitoring partnership where I agreed to go to treatment and um, when the timing's right, I may be lucky enough to fly airplanes again. I'm not there yet. And I thought I surrendered into that program. I, I knew something was, wait, so backtrack, I did that year sober. Okay. But then to, um, at the end of that, and through that, I was flying. Okay. Um, and not working program. And I still would not admit, you know, in my mind, I was not alcoholic. Like, that's not it. Did that that's year dry kind problem. of kind of answer like uh, any doubts you might have had? Like, you see, I'm not an alcoholic. I went a year without drinking. Yeah, yeah exactly. Sure. Mm-hmm. I said I would do it and I did it. And um, at the end of that year, I um, went with a friend and we climbed Mount Fuji. And as, a, you know, the thing was on the last, the last noodle shop on the way down the mountain before taking the bus back to Tokyo, you know, we had a big... Uh, Asahi with our noodles. And was that your first drink after a year? Yeah. Oh, wow. And, and it wasn't that drink and it wasn't maybe the next one at dinner, but not before too long. I was sneaking because my friend didn't see I was, and this is still before I had left Tokyo. Um, like it came on pretty fast, but there was that voice deep down. Like, here we go. Um, so, like negative or, or positive? Uh, 
negative. And it was, you know, months and months before it felt like I was no longer in control. So that's roughly 2000, you know, late 2015, no, early of 2016. And then by 2018, I called the representative at my union and said, I, I can't stop. So you basically almost like turned yourself in and said, look, I can't, I can't in good faith continue to do this job without getting help. Um, yeah, because I knew I could not. I knew something was going to happen. I had not fallen on my head. I had had a cute little ambulance ride. I was starting to disappoint my children. I had chosen to move out of our family home because they just didn't understand. And I looked at this glass of wine at this beach house I was renting and I just realized like that's the only this is the only relationship I want to have you know this glass of wine right now yeah my kids were up the hill in Palace Birdies their dad is an amazing man who fully stepped up and um you know they were safe but they were not with me and I was okay with that and I just knew something was going to happen I was I deserved DUIs. Um, I had not gotten in trouble at work at all. Um, but something could happen. Like I just, I knew it was over because I could not control my drinking and enjoy it. And I could not enjoy it and control it. I just, you know, I wanted to be alone. My friends were, you know, I, I didn't socialize anymore. I, didn't I just I wasn't being me that's where it it takes you that's where it took me I mean literally your phone stops ringing your life becomes as big as a thimble and you're fine with that which is the weirdest part or the scariest part you know like the alcoholic at the end of his rope there's a million people trying to be like come on like don't you see what your life has become and don't you want help and look at this way it's so much better and and healthier and you know, it's like bright like the sun, but you, I, you just, you know, for me, I just wanted to stay in the darkness by myself and it made yeah. perfect sense. And that's the scariest part. And that's why I have such gratitude for being sober and having the exact flip perspective, because I can look back. I'm talking to you. And that's why I love doing this because it takes me back. I'm like, man, the insanity. Yeah. yeah. Did, I had three girlfriends who are also lady pilots who just sat me down they're like, they just said, don't make us call the chief pilot. Like, you need to call. There's, there's help. There's resources. Nobody loses their job. Nobody, and it's been amazing. The journey has been so amazing. And it seriously took me all those years of little tiny incidents to get to where it's all one big thing. It's like all, it was all there. I just didn't see that it was the alcohol. It was him. It was her. It was the toddler. It was the sassy teenager. It was my, you know, my cousins writing, you know, nasty. It was, it was everything but me. And it wasn't alcoholism until it was. And I was totally functional until I wasn't. And it took me losing well, really, I made the call to my union. And what day is this? Is this, is this your, like your sobriety date? Is this a particular date where you stopped drinking? 
No, this is end of April, 2018. I made the call into the program. Um, and oh my gosh, finally some relief because the woman I talked to, the chairman of our, um, the program at my union, she told me her story, which was similar. And I went into treatment and I didn't even get it then. I show up at treatment and I'm like, how hard can this be? I fly jets. <laughs> you know, well, it's, it's really extra hard when you think you know everything. <laughs> so I was in treatment and then sober living at the treatment place and um, relapsed, got discharged for some silly reason on September 11th. Of 2018. So you relapsed when you were in treatment? I did. And then okay. I stay, and that was like August, late August. Was um, discharged from treatment a couple weeks later, and I couldn't stay sober. But I was afraid even to admit that I was relapsing. Like oh, I had that's a the sober worst. Link. That's the yeah, worst. That, I, I lived like that for a little while. You're lying. I, I, for me, I was going to meetings. I was lying about being sober. I would get my hand up to say my day count, you know, and I had drank the day previous, but I had to make people think I was still sober. So I was like, wait, what did I say yesterday? It's just that there is no, for me, in my experience, there's no worse way of living. It was awful. And I, I hadn't yet caught on to the B, no human power. I was so terrified to admit to my monitoring program that, I didn't have it. I wasn't getting it. I thought I would then lose my job. And I, I didn't realize, you know, what a gift this program, um, monitoring program is. I'm real clear on what a gift um, the 12-step program is. But I relapsed. And it wasn't even alcohol at first. It was hand sanitizer and lemon extract. And, like, really, I'm pretty sure I'll never get COVID because I drank so much hand sanitizer. Um, but that's neither here nor there. I finally got busted. I was in a, an aftercare, an outpatient program and got busted and got invited back to treatment. I got to ask this question because I know people are listening to this and, and, and they're, they're thinking what I'm thinking. Can you get really drunk off the sanitizer? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I don't recommend it. It's really disgusting, but it does do the trick um but for me i didn't i could not admit how much anxiety i had because the faa doesn't allow that either so i went all through my first official inpatient treatment without saying I, i'm so anxious i think my head's gonna explode you just couldn't bear your soul you felt like you're almost they're keeping yeah. notes on yeah mm -hmm. it's gotten better now but we we weren't even allowed to be on antidepressants i like I said, I went through my first round of inpatient treatment without even saying the word anxiety. So my relapsing um, between my first round of treatment and my second was just a glass or just something until until I'd really mess up. And then my last drink was March 22nd, 2019. And then I 
called up my uh, monitoring program and I said, I need to go back to training. I mean, back to training, back to, um, back to treatment. And so I did. And that time I drove myself there. The, the counselor who I loved the first time around, she's like, can we start now? And I'm so very grateful. Those are the words. Can we start now? Like, let's go. Like, are, are, you, yeah. are you ready to get honest? Yeah. I wasn't there because my brother dropped me off after the family wedding. And I wasn't there because my girlfriends threatened my career. You know, the, the first go round at treatment, I was there because I couldn't do it anymore. And for people like who don't know, even, go ahead. Yeah, sorry, my I dog can't. wouldn't even look at me. My dog wouldn't even look at me and sitting on the bluff in Lunata Bay, gorgeous sunset, drinking my last ever glass of red wine out of a Starbucks cup. And this woman came up from the bluff. It's a really steep trail. So she just appeared out of nowhere, right in front of my face, this gorgeous alcoholic lesbian mermaid um, just walked up and I said, you know, she's like, how are you? You don't look so good. I'm like, I, it's over. And it turned out she was a great alcoholic. And we had a super nice chat and she's like, it's going to be okay. And it has been. So wait a minute, this is your last drink that this, this person yeah. appears. Yes. And then yeah. you, and then you go to treatment willingly and it all starts. like higher power to the to the most i still text her every now and then um she's truly this mermaid appeared out of lunata bay and told me it would be okay for people that don't know what what did it feel like finally to show up and when that counselor says can we start now was there an amount of relief that, that washed over your body infinite and i've never had a problem with the higher power or my idea of how the universe works, but I never could hand it over or trust so thoroughly that I could swan dive off that cliff and and start now. And that's what I got um, when I went back to treatment under my own horsepower. And and some of it was really dopey. You know, the, the counselor said, you know, pray on your knees. I'm like, wait, what, really? Like, on my knees? Like, when we were kids? And she's like, cha-cha. Like, of course. You know, and the thing is, I thought I was doing everything I was told. Even from my first time in inpatient treatment, I was just doing everything I heard. And my yeah, the itty bitty shitty committee in my head is pretty tricky. So um, I had to dissolve those neural pathways of and and really dissect what I am being told from what I hear, and then really just blow it open and really trust something other, certainly than myself, but any human power. Were the, was there a small series of victories that you, you can claim or you say, or you claim at the time? Because that's what happened for me. I started to have some esteemable things happen in my life. And, and all of a sudden you say, hey, this is working. 
that has come more than ever in the last year. But yes, when I returned back to treatment the second time, the the techs and the sober living managers and you know, they started to see something different from the me before before I did. But yeah, I finally realized you know, I thought I signed up for the whole program to get my job back. When can I fly? When can I fly? Can I fly yet? Can I fly yet? Other guys are flying. The boys are flying. Maybe it's just me because I'm a girl. But everybody could see what I couldn't see. And that is the first time I was only there to get my job back, I didn't even realize what I had lost or almost lost. Um, You know, and so in the really close to two years sobriety now, which I'm still just a baby, but um, I had no clue how close I came to losing my kids, not physically to child protective services or custody to their father, but just losing them. Yeah, and that's forever. Um, Yeah. But I have my kids, I have I am sober, dignified woman now and absolutely free to remember who my authentic self is before I started trying to please everybody around me. I know you shine pretty bright because my brother, I mean, when he found out I was doing this and he started to listen to a couple of them and he got on board and he was like, I got this person, this woman who's just amazing that you've got to talk to. And, you know, that's why that's why I'm talking to you. And that's what this whole thing is about. It's about people like you who shine bright in this world of recovery, whether you consider yourself a baby or somebody considers himself an elder statesman. It's kind of like just it's today. And it's it's like you said, it's authentic. It's it's beyond my wildest dreams. I had sat down or one of our writing assignments when I was first in treatment was what, you know, my life would look like in six months in a year i sold myself so short there you know all it was about was flying airplanes and traveling some more and now it's have a new employer with a capital e and i don't even know what my life is going to look like but it is so amazing we mentioned those uh this this series of victories and you said that's more happened over the course of the past year what are some of them i just got from being afraid of everything and what people would think. And if I ended up divorced a second time, which I did, um, I had to let my children's father be free. Um, you know, we couldn't, we couldn't break through a lack of communication. And, and really it was the fear of what that was going to look like to our community or all that I would lose in our divorce. And I still cared so much what my family thought and I guess my biggest victory is of course it's not a screaming battle every morning to get the teenagers up and going and they're just they're just them and they're just doing their job and we don't even scream and yell at my house anymore it's awesome but there's also um I don't depend on what other people think or expect I'm not you know I'm not in anybody's face with the me that I'm turning into, but I'm just 
each day can wake up and ask my higher power for what I'm supposed to do because it's still not, you know, drive to the airport. So, and I just do what's put in front of me and I have an amazing relationship with the children's dad. He lives 10 doors down. We settled out all the property and investments and everything using um, a mediator and no fancy lawyers and there's dignity in that it's it's flipping tragic that you know we couldn't stay married but there was total dignity in all of it and just that we're we're all living our best life we're good friends we parent the children um collaboratively you know there's nothing left to argue about you know i don't know what my place is in the community i kind of made a mess of everything but that's okay because um the people who matter and some of them have and everybody knows i'm sober because i was um because everybody knew i was yeah me too that's uh, it's yeah. kind of it's not it's not the worst thing in the world everybody that was close to me when i was drinking knows i'm sober now and uh yeah. I, pretty much all of them are thrilled exactly yeah um you know, 700 of them saw me wipe out on the dance floor at the Education Foundation Gala. So it's kind of cool that, you know, four or five of them know that I'm really, really sober now. It's way better that way. One thing I want to um, go back to is you talked about your, you know, getting divorced. And I think that's a really good example for people like, you know, you could stay. This is, again, it's all about me. Like in situations like that where I have fear what other people are going to think of me, it's paralyzing to stay in those situations but if you use sobriety and your higher power and this thing that we're gifted through getting sober in the 12 steps and you can actually go through and walk through those hard emotions and make those impossible decisions to get divorced or do it in the matter you just explained right like all of a sudden like you feel so good about yourself that for me oh i don't need to get drunk anymore to feel okay because now i know that regular life when done properly with the right kind of assistance right god and a program is awesome, you know, and I can, I can do this thing. And, and that, that begets a whole nother situation like that where, okay, if, now the next time I know how to do it. Exactly. I can, yeah, I did one small success leads to more, leads to more and leads to the confidence to be of service to other people to let them know that they can get through it. You know, I don't have to drink over my marriage or my family or you know my cousin wrote this really mean letter that set off a taylor swift reaction in my head um it's just yeah i don't have to be that person anymore i can sit quietly with myself and the emotions and the feelings that have bubbled up from 53 years of living and you know in in three decades of trying hard not to not to think about it you must help like a lot of a lot of women in 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 your area like do you find that like now that you've you know you have all these experiences when drinking and now in sobriety are you able to share that and kind of like get get something out of that i would imagine you are i have a really tight squad of women that i met in treatment that were still super close and then I have 
women right here in the South Bay. And um, I would say like seven months ago, we couldn't handle that it was only Zoom meetings. And I have a Thursday night meeting in my backyard um, live. Something special no about other, that. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I, I couldn't have survived without it. That these women will drop everything on a Thursday and come to my garden at five and really bear their souls. Like we're so in this together. I can't imagine. And I have a sponsor that has taken me so far in a year. I, it could only be a gift from God. You know, you mentioned, and you mentioned your sponsor. I know like you share with me a little bit. Uh, when we talked on the phone before this, I mean, she, this is a woman who is really giving, giving her all to AA. Yes. Yes. She is the most amazing example of dignity and grace. And um, she's ill. She is stage four, um, she has cancer, and she's on hospice. And she has every reason to, you know, get a little happy with the morphine and she won't do it. And she walks me through it on a daily basis. Why would she want to? I mean, why would she want to miss one minute of her girls surrounding her and the life that's going on? And even if it's she's bedridden, it's just the tiny breeze that comes in her window. She wouldn't miss it, and I wouldn't want to miss it either. You, uh, you've, you've said a lot. We're coming up on the end here. I mean, this is like absolutely amazing. I, I, I want to ask you, you know, there's, there's people out there who are listening to this, and they might be on the fence. They're, they're scared. They're not sure. What would you say to that person that's at that, that's at that point that you were at? Uh, what I say, it's funny because my younger brother called me a month ago, and my ex-husband younger brother called me a few days ago and like they don't want to do it either but I just say like, close your eyes and believe and don't be afraid to take that swan dive and I don't know I don't know what your higher power is but believe that he or it or she loves you more than you could ever know and the safety net is huge and then there are all these super fun drunks and Alcoholics Anonymous that can like really, really catch up. Yeah, that's awesome, Kim. She, you're, you're, by the way, you, you, you're going to get your you're flying high regardless. Mm -hmm. And I and and I can't th thank you enough for sharing this time with me. Um, I really, really appreciate it. Anything else you want people to know? I don't know where I would start. It's, I just have a life beyond my wildest dreams. And I owe it all to people like you and especially your brother who are willing to share your own journey. Like I hear your brother's voice in my head all the time. And now there's you too. It's awesome. Yeah, I hear his voice too. <laughs> <laughs> kimchi, I will see you. By the way, the South Bank, you hear kimchi reference it. It's like the, one of the most beautiful areas in, in Southern California. Do you live in Hermosa now? I live up on um, the Palos Verdes Hill in a spot called Lunata Bay. Okay. So I I do still go to the club down in Hermosa and 
my home group is uh, Avenue C, 10 a.m. on Sundays, sitting on the sand. And yeah, it's all my life, 53 years right under my nose. And I had no idea it was such an amazing spot of recovery. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah. I'm blessed and lucky beyond. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll see you at a meeting out there. Uh, hopefully sometime soon. I hope soon. so. Yeah, kimchi. Yeah, don't be a stranger. I will not be. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Pete. A quick footnote before we uh, let Kevin Souza take us out of here. Kimchi and I talked after the podcast, and she said she felt like a schmo because she kind of threw her dad under the bus. Schmo is her word, not mine. Uh, she said her dad actually did quit drinking in support of her program, and he's actually ahead of her in sobriety. So he's happy, healthy, 82 years old, and two years alcohol-free. Pretty cool story, and we wanted to make sure we added that because we appreciate our people who stop by on the podcast. All right, now let's let Kevin take us away. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been Rogue Media Network Podcasts.